Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Over the next few weeks, um, we're going to do an Advent series. Now, it might seem to you like, oh my goodness, you're in the midst of November and here we are, Advent season already. Um, the year has gone so fast without you adding to it by doing the Advent series sort of early. Well, a bit like you, I don't know where 2020 has gone, and to be truthful, we'll be quite happy to see it gone. Um, the reason we've started our Advent series a bit earlier has to do with the subject that we're actually going to cover, because we've called our Advent series this year The Characters of Christmas, and there are quite a few characters to deal with. So over the next few weeks, we plan to delve into the lives and the characters of some of the key players in the Christmas story. Now, the purpose is not simply a nostalgic reenactment of history. Our hope is that we can learn something from how these characters responded when Christmas came to them. When Christmas confronted and challenged them, how they responded was uh, as crucial. There were some wonderful responses. There were some terrible responses. So uh, we suspect that some of the issues that challenged those people at the first Christmas will be the same kinds of issues that challenge us in our Christmas seasons. So we're going to delve into their lives. I'm going to begin by reading um, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. It's an extended passage, but it gives us an introduction to the Christmas story. I know most of you will be familiar with it, but let's read it together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophets, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child, and when you've found him, bring back word to me so that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
When Herod, uh, then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, and he, call, he, he shall be called a Nazarene. In that passage in Matthew, we're introduced to some of the key players in the Christmas story. Luke's gospel introduces us to another handful that aren't found in Matthew, but Matthew introduces us to Mary and Joseph, to the young child, to the Magi or the wise men, and of course to King Herod. When we were deciding what characters we would do for this series, um, I, I chose King Herod. Now, I'm, I'm not sure why I did, but... Um, I decided I would do Herod. Um, I really do hope that doesn't say anything about me as a person, but hey, that's the way it is. When we come to Christmas and the characters involved in it, most often we don't give much time or place to Herod. He doesn't usually feature in the local Christmas play, and I've never seen his figure in a nativity scene. He is usually strategically airbrushed out of, the, out of the situation for good and obvious reasons. The slaughter of the innocents isn't something that we generally want our children, or truth be known, ourselves, to really dwell on. In reality, however, Herod does feature prominently in the real Christmas story, and to ignore him is to ignore the real world into which Jesus was born. In spite of what you see on TV and, and other places, Jesus was not born into a winter wonderland with sweet singing dimple-faced angels all around and cute reindeer nuzzling one another at the side of the young child's manger. He was in fact born into a war zone. He was born into the midst of a cosmic war where dark forces waged a violent struggle against all that was good and all that was godly. Supernatural powers were then and remain on a singular mission to thwart God's purposes. It was a war that started long before the Christmas story began, but it was one that reached fever pitch with the birth of the child. We conveniently tend to forget that underneath the warm glow of Christmas was a dark thread of violence and savagery. As we consider the characters of Christmas, we should not forget nor overlook King Herod. If you go back through the text that I read, you'll find his name is mentioned nine times. That is exactly the same number as the young child, the phrase the young child. Both are mentioned in that reading nine times. I think Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has set up a deliberate juxtaposition. The, the, without doubt, he's intending a contrast between Herod the Great and the young child. 
Now, before I make a few comments regarding Herod's character, let me give you a little bit of historical background about this man who came to be known in history as Herod the Great. His father's name was Antipater, and he was a wealthy, high-ranking man of Edomite or Idumean descent. So he was not a Jew, he was essentially Arabic. But his ancestors at some point in time converted to Judaism. This time was a time of um, political upheaval. Antipater, Herod's father, in the upheaval, sided with the Romans. And of course, if you know anything about history, the Romans won and uh, won handsomely, and they rewarded Antipater for his loyalty by giving him a political appointment. He became the procurator of Judea. Antipater then appointed his second son, Herod, as governor of Galilee at the very young age of 25 in about 47 BC. Herod proved himself to be a very astute and able leader. He purged the area of bandit leaders and their followers, and he was renowned brutally for collecting taxes for the Romans. He was ambitious, he was a politically clever street fighter who would do whatever was required to maintain his power. He divorced his first wife, Doris, and sent her and her son into exile so that he could strategically marry into the royal house of the Hasmonean dynasty. And his new wife, her name was Miriam, or we would say Miriam. After all sorts of political intrigue and skirmishes, which would take too long to talk to you about, but they involved key names like Cleopatra and Mark Antony, uh, Herod was declared to be, by the Roman Senate, King of Judea. And he maintained that position for nearly four decades, about 37 years. That long reign, relatively speaking, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, was by virtue of Herod's political nous and his murderous ruthlessness toward anybody who he perceived to be a potential threat. Now, it's easy to forget that such behavior, such ruthlessness, wasn't particularly unusual at that time among rulers and potentates and kings. They, unlike us, never had anything like the Geneva Convention to adhere to, and the whole idea of human rights, so indispensable to the thinking of us postmoderns, wasn't something that ancients even considered or certainly didn't value. Value. We, we tend to forget that the Christianized West stands as a prominent exception to the norm of history. The norm of history is barbarism. C.S. Lewis once point, poignantly observed, the normal state of humanity is barbarism, just as the normal surface of our planet is salt, salt water. Now, while ruthlessness and barbarism was normal, even by ancient standards, Herod was a bloodthirsty tyrant. Early in his tenure, he removed by execution the remaining members of the Hasmonean dynasty who he thought might in any way rise to challenge his position. He also had many of the Jewish Sanhedrin members killed, especially those ones who weren't favorable to his rule. I don't know if you know much about modern, more modern history, but Joseph Stalin, who ruled uh, Russia with, a, with an iron hand, was once, it was once said of him that paranoia was his worldview. Well, the same could most definitely be said of Herod the Great. Um, by the way, Stalin also quipped that the death of one man is a tragedy, the death of millions is a statistic, and that would be something that Herod would have concurred with. 
Herod's insecurity and resultant paranoia was fed by the intrigue and deception that went on within his own family. Despite his deep and profound affections for his wife Miriam, he ultimately had her murdered because of a suspicion, false as it turned out, that she'd been unfaithful to him. He had the oldest son of his first wife murdered. He murdered two of Miriam's sons and 300 of their supporters. He murdered Miriam's grandfather, her brother, and her mother. Augustus Caesar, the Caesar in Rome at the time, quipped that it would be better to be one of Herod's pigs rather than one of Herod's sons. And the reason he said that, of course, was Herod was Idumean, but Jewish converted and therefore didn't eat pork. And so basically he's saying much safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. His paranoia seemed to know no bounds. He changed his will six times during his lifetime, finally dividing up his territory between three of his sons. He had eight wives and 14 children, and although he butchered many of them, there was still at least three. In his 70s, Herod became incurably ill and suffered greatly as a result of a disease that people of the time simply called Herod's evil. Some Jewish priests at the time, thinking that Herod would be distracted by his illness, took the opportunity to tear down the Roman eagle that had been placed over the gates of the temple. But ruthless to the last, Herod gathered them up and burned them alive. Knowing that he was dying and knowing that, would, knowing that nobody would mourn his death, Herod sent out invitations and commanded prominent Jewish men from all over the Judean region to come to Jerusalem. On arrival, he had them arrested and held them with the command that when he died, they were to be executed. He was determined to get national mourning one way or another. Thankfully, that command was actually never carried out. The slaughter of the innocents that's recorded in Matthew chapter 2 occurred in Herod's last disease-ridden years and is entirely in keeping with his normal modus operandi. Finally, Herod died in agony, apparently, at Jericho in the spring of 4 AD. One of his contemporaries actually commented, he attained his kingdom as a fox, he ruled it as a tiger, and he died like a dog. Now, given that, you might be wondering, how on earth did he get the name Herod the Great? What, what about him could possibly be considered great? Well, he gained that title primarily as a result of his prowess for designing and building buildings, sometimes huge projects. He designed and built Masada, the winter spa, a fortress riding, rising 360 five meters up above the floor of the Dead Sea. It remains today one of the most visited sites in Israel. He built the harbor at Caesarea. He built numerous aqueducts for the transportation of water into the cities that he built. He built a cluster of fortresses east of the Dead Sea. He built the fortress of Antonia. And most notably, he extended and beautified the temple in Jerusalem. It was said by the rabbis of the time that if a man hadn't seen Herod's temple, he hadn't seen a beautiful building. So it was without doubt that he was a builder par excellence, and hence the term Herod the Great. However, by nearly every other measure, he was anything but great. And in fact, by biblical standards, the man was both a monster and a fool. Today, when we use the word fool, we tend to think of somebody who, who lacks intelligence. Perhaps they're a bit simple, perhaps they're the class clown or the court jester. 
Uh, and so we, we generally use the term speaking about their relative intelligence. But that is not how the Bible uses the word fool. In biblical language, the, the word fool and the idea of foolishness is a reference to moral rather than intellectual content. It really has nothing to do with intellectual capacity. Herod, as I said, was smart, he was savvy, he was streetwise. He, he was a good manipulator of people. He hadn't managed to stay in power for nearly four decades by good luck. This guy knew his way around the block. In calling him a fool, we are using it biblically. And the Bible in general, and the book of Proverbs, in fact, in particular, has a great deal to say about fools and foolishness. Proverbs tells us that fools are quarrelsome, they're arrogant, they're self-centred, they're quick-tempered, they trust in their own fund of knowledge, they are wise in their own eyes, they lack self-control. And Herod fitted that pattern perfectly on pretty much all counts. In Psalm 14 and verse 1, the scripture starts off, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And if you read that in the King James, it you'll notice that the phrase there is, is in italics, which means it's not there in the original, it's been supplied by the translators to try and make sense. But actually, if you leave that out, it makes complete sense. And it says, the fool has said in his heart, no God. It's not, there is no God, but no God. No, I don't want that. No, I don't want you. It isn't that the fool doesn't believe in God. It is simply that the fool sets himself in opposition to God by saying no. Herod wasn't an atheist. He believed in God. He, he, he believed in the coming Messiah. He was, he was Jewish by conversion. He believed in the coming Messiah to the degree that he wanted him killed because he felt that that Messiah would threaten his rule. He believed, but his response was no. Christmas came to Herod's kingdom, and he said no. In so doing, he became not just a monster, but a fool. And I want to ask you tonight, how do you respond when Christmas comes to your kingdom? When God's Christmas dealings challenge and confront you, what do you say? When he comes to your private kingdom. And each one of us have a private kingdom. If you don't believe me, you try invading your neighbours sometime and see how they react. You listen to a young child's language and the most often heard word is, Mine? Even at that early age, they are figuring out the legitimate boundaries of their private kingdom. And God comes to our private kingdoms in Christmas seasons and at other seasons as well, and challenges and confronts. How do you respond? Are you a fool like Herod and go, no, 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 I won't do that. No, I'm not interested. Let me show you from this passage a couple of areas, areas where Herod became an absolute fool. The point of this isn't, as I said, just a historical study, but actually it's to hold up to us a God-polished mirror. Because the reality is, sometimes the same traits that you find in Herod are found in the caverns of our own heart. There's a Herod, uh, there's Herodian traits that live within inside of us and can as, e as easily rise in us as they did in him to make us fools. And the first thing I note from this passage is fools have no sense of the transcendence of life, the brevity of life. 
Verse 1 says, in the days of Herod. You know, Herod lived as if he always would. He had reigned in Judea for close to 40 years, four decades, and yet the passage describes it as the days of Herod. Now that, you might think, could just be a literary device. It could also be deliberately intended by the Holy Spirit through the penmanship of Matthew to remind us of the transient nature of our existence, our days. You talk to old people and they'll say, oh, how time has flied. It just flies. I was mentioning to the congregation this morning, last weekend, Karen and I took two of our grandkids and we went down to visit some family in the area that we were both raised in. And just driving around, the memories that flooded back, we took them past the house that we lived in and showed them the college that Karen and I both went to. And, and, and it seemed like it was only yesterday. It seemed like it was only yesterday that I pulled the results of my school certificate out of, the, out of the letterbox and with trembling hands opened it to see how I'd done. It seemed like only yesterday that I met Karen. It seemed like only yesterday I preached my first sermon. You know, one of the pop groups that I used to like to listen to, a group called the Moody Blues, they sang a song called 22,000 Days. And in the midst of it, they said, it's all you've got, it's not a lot, 22,000 days. And it flies by. It's been said that time is the only real wealth you have. Herod completely lacked that perspective. He functioned as though he would always be around. He was like another fool that Jesus spoke of, whose crops exploded and, and just there, were, there was plenty everywhere and he's building barns and, and what will I do with this and what will I do with that? And, and now I've got it all and I can take my liberty and rest. And, and that night, a voice said to him, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you. That man, like Herod, had no sense of the brevity of life. That James says, it's, it's like a puff of smoke. It's there and then it's gone. Herod lived as though he would always live. He was probably around 75 years of age when he slaughtered the innocents. So he'd had slightly more than his 22,000 days. You'd think that he'd be giving considerable thought to the significance of the Messiah's arrival at this time of his life. Many people go through a period of assessment in their maybe late 40s or early 50s. What is life about? Not this man. He, he didn't even think about the end of his age. You know, in the book of Amos, there's a passage that says, prepare to meet your God. Isn't it ironic that people prepare for almost everything in life, but not that. And it's the one thing that's inevitable. It's the one thing that will characterize every single one of us, should Jesus not come during our lifetime. People prepare for exams, they prepare for careers, they prepare for holidays, they prepare insurance, they prepare for their kids' education, and they don't take note or prepare for this, the end of life, for, for the brevity of life. It's transient. Herod did not think like that. He's in his 70s, and he still hasn't stopped to consider what life is about. And like a fool, he rushed on without any consideration or concern as to where it's leading. That perspective made him a fool. Well, you could say to me, well, Don, I'm well short of 22,000 days. You might be over it, but I'm well short of it. I've got a lot in front of me. Friends, you don't know how long your race is. None of us know how far we have to run. And we shouldn't assume. 
We have opportunity to make preparations. And if you haven't made the most vital of all of life's preparations, can I say with the most gravity that I can muster tonight, make it, sort it, get your life right with the Lord, prepare to meet your God. Herod was a fool because he didn't think like that. A wise person is very sensitive to the days of their lives. Secondly, fools are troubled but not changed. In verse 3, Herod hears the news about the Messiah's arrival and it says he's troubled. The Greek word there, it means stirred up, agitated. Uh, it's the kind of thing that wakes you up in the middle of the night. Herod was shaken but not shaped. Some of you thought I was going to say shaken but not stirred. I'm not a Bond fan particularly, okay? Herod was shaken, but he refused to be shaped. You know what? The good news when it comes to us, you know, we, we say about the truth, the truth will make you free, and it does, but before it, makes you tr before it makes you free, it usually makes you miserable. It shakes you up. It disturbs you. It's the nature of truth to disturb. The purpose of God is that the disturbing and the shaking will bring us to a place where we can be adjusted and changed. Herod was shaken but responded with, no God, no, I will not be changed. I will not be shaped. And that response made him a fool. And how easy it is for us to follow that Herodian tendency. We hear the truth and it impacts us, but time goes by and we all know the impact is somewhat lessened. And as, I, as the book of James notes, we walk away from the mirror of revelation that is the word of God and, and we just forget because we don't do anything about what God is saying to us. In the final analysis, like Herod, we're disturbed but not changed. The third thing I see in this passage that makes a person a fool is that Herod was secretive, and fools always are. In verse 7, it says, He secretly inquired of the wise man. Psalm 64, verse 2, talks about the secret counsels of the wicked. And I want to say to you, there's a secrecy that is incredibly unhealthy. I guess we've all heard the phrase, family secrets. How many times does a phrase like that reference something that's healthy? Almost never. When we talk about family secrets, we're always talking about something invariably that's a reference to something dark and destructive. Remember the child abuser always says, oh, let's keep this as your and my little secret. And I want to tell you, beware of people who are engaged in secret conversations and secret dealings. Secrecy is very rarely healthy. When I see somebody who I consider to be secretive, I nearly always think there's something profoundly unhealthy lurking there. With addictions of any kind, whether it's drug addiction, addicted to you know, medication or, or pornography or whatever you like, invariably around about that addiction is secrecy and lies. They go together like Siamese twins. And Herod is a man who moves in secret. He's agitated and he moves secretly to manipulate things to his own advantage and to protect his own interests. And I think if, if, if many of us would be honest, we can, we can recognize something at least of that Herodian trait within us. How often we are moved to protect our own interests and to do it secretly so that no one actually recognizes what we've just done. Friends, if we don't want to be a fool, we need to face our fears 
our insecurities, and we need to, we need to face them with candor, with candor, with openness, with honesty, with transparency. If there's one thing that marks the kingdom of God, it is the mark of inner honesty. Psalm 51, behold, God desires truth in the inward parts and in the hidden parts. He will make you to know wisdom. God wants openness and honesty. And to the degree that you find yourself moving in secrecy and subterfuge, then you are moving in stupidity and foolishness. And continued in, you'll create a foolish character. The fourth and final thing. Fools refuse the opportunity to worship. In verse 8, Herod sent the wise men to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child. When you've found him, bring back word to me so that I may come and worship him also. He instructs the Magi to go and find the child and worship and declares that he'll come and do the same once the child is found. He has no intention of doing that. He employs spiritual benevolent language in his interaction with the wise men, but he has no intention of actually doing what he's just said. And it's a reminder how easily people can co-opt religious language to manipulate and to destroy. Herod is not interested in worship at all. Worship requires submission. The word worship in the Greek is the word proskuneo, and it literally means to bow down and, and, and kiss somebody's feet, like a dog licking its master's feet, to prostrate oneself. And Herod is incapable of that. He is a complete narcissist. And the only people that bow down are other people toward him. There is no way that he's going to bow down to anyone other than himself. I find it fascinating that the Magi worshipped. Now, you've got to know, these people were also royalty. The Magi, the Magi weren't shepherds, you know, the poor shepherds. These men came bringing incense, gold, myrrh. They were high-ranking people, but they recognized something beyond themselves. And in spite of their social status, they bowed and they worshipped. And it says in verse 10 that their lives were marked by exceeding great joy. I find it interesting that Herod refused to worship, and his life in verse 16 is said to be marked by exceeding anger. Exceeding great joy, exceeding anger. Ghosted by the Magi, Herod flies into a murderous rage and orders the slaughter of every boy under two years of age in the Bethlehem region. Anger followed by violence is a sure sign of idolatry, of severely misplaced priorities. You know, the choice for Herod and for you and I is whether we will be worshippers or whether we will be those who go to war in our own interests. We don't trust God to establish us. We, we, we go to war in our own interests. And you can't do that and worship at the same time. To me, I think the scripture says that if you will give yourself to God in worship, then he will largely deal with the other enemies and fears that you face. In Psalm 81, it says, Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I should have soon subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. When you turn from worship to war in your own interests, then God is likely to let you try and do what he would have otherwise done on your behalf. You go down that road and you'll find things start dying all around you. The last reference to Herod in this passage has to do with his 22,000 days that are up. In verse 19, Herod died. The legacy that he left is a sad, tragic one. He was the monstrous fool of Christmas. 
God's kingdom that Christmas season came to him and like a fool, he said no. His rejection of and resistance to that offer led to the death and decay of all that he set his hand to. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, Proverbs says, but the end of that way is death. And he found that out to his own shame. Another Christmas season has come to our private kingdoms. How will you respond to it? How do you respond to the dealings of God? God's word comes to you, you can be stirred. But what do you do with that stirring? Do you act on it and allow it to shape you? Or, or are you like Herod? You, no, no, not now. Maybe not ever. No God. We need to be so careful that we avoid the path of foolishness that Herod trod because it is a well-trodden path. A failure to account for one's days, living as if one always will, not thinking about the transience of life and the preparations that are required. A person who gets sh shaken by the word of God but does not then allow it to shape their responses and their lives. A person who's secret in their dealings rather than transparent. A person who refuses to worship but goes to war on their own behalf and in their own interests. Can I suggest to you and encourage you that rather than being like Herod, we try and emulate more the Magi, people who were also royal in their status, but people who were opened to all the possibilities that that Christmas season brought them. And I think we need to cultivate attitudes that are the exact opposite of Herod. People who are aware of how transient life is, who have made the right preparations regarding that transience. People who are both shaken and shaped by God's word. People who are opened and transparent to God and to other people. And people who worship God and trust him to act on their behalf. Musicians, would you please come? Over the next, <clears throat> excuse me, over the next few weeks, we're going to delve into the lives of uh, other Christmas characters. Thankfully, uh, none of them are as monstrous as this particular man was, and hopefully some of them will provide incredibly positive um, models for us as we seek to shape our lives in this Christmas season. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.